Well, <clears throat> I wonder if you are keeping up with your daily Bible readings. We're almost to the end of that. Just a little over a week to go to wrap up reading through the Bible again. Arthur, 13 this this finishes 13, uh, 13 years we've been doing the Bible reading calendar. And so uh, if you've kept up with that, you've done well. Uh, you know, that it's it's... Not only just the satisfaction of saying that you were able to complete it and read through the Bible, that's a great thing in itself, but it's also the encouragement that comes from daily exposure to God's Word, and we need that, and that's a good thing. And so, uh, if you've not done that in the past, uh, new copies of the Bible reading calendar for 2015 are, are, are already being printed, and they're out there on the table. Plan to do that. Uh, you know, if you, if you don't feel like you can invest the time to read both Old and New Testaments, Read just the new or read just the old, but spend some time uh, with reading the Bible every day. And I think you, you will really, it will enrich your new year and things will, will uh, you'll appreciate it. I know that you will if you will do that. It's a, a really good investment of time. Right now with our daily Bible readings, we are in the book of Revelation in the New Testament. And I don't know about you, but as I have been reading in Revelation, I have been struggling to remember the details of our study of Revelation and the meaning of a lot of the things that are contained there in that very highly figurative language of the book of Revelation. You know, it was actually surprisingly, when I went back and looked, it was six years ago that we did a, a rather thorough study of the book of Revelation. Time really flies. It doesn't seem like that was six years ago. Uh, three years ago, I did the very same thing I'm going to do tonight, and that is to review that information because as I've been reading it, I've been struggling to say, okay, now let me think, what does that mean? What, what, how does that fit in? And so I thought we would spend just a few minutes tonight doing a quick overview, a quick review and overview of the book of Revelation, because we are in the middle of reading that in our daily Bible readings right now. And I, I do think it's, try, it's good to try to keep that big picture view of the book of Revelation. It's so easy to get... Uh, down, lost in the details, and and sort of miss the big picture. And so, uh, hopefully, by reviewing that, it will help us, and that's what we want to do in our study tonight. Thanks for being here as we look at the book of Revelation. Thanks for being here. Thanks for your your, uh, diligence to come back on Sunday night and to participate and to be a help and an encouragement uh, to what we are uh, attempting to do for God's glory here at College View. We thank you for being here very much. To any and all who may be visiting with us, thanks for coming. We hope you'll come again. Let's talk about revelation. The revelation is from a word, uh, the Greek word apocalypsis. You see apocalypse there. And the idea of that, I think people today, when if you were to talk about an apocalypse, they think it's a, some foreboding uh, terrible thing uh, that is coming. And that's not necessarily a bad idea about Revelation. It's an, but literally, it's an uncovering or an, an unveiling. And so God was revealing. He was making known some things that were coming. A judgment was coming. And the book of Revelation is describing that. As we've studied this, we know that there are several interpretive views that are offered of the book of Revelation. One is the, the preterist view, which says that uh, events were fulfilled in the first century. Uh, there's the historical view that says it shows the future of the church throughout all the rest of history. There's the futurist view which says that the things in the book of Revelation are dealing with the things that immediately precede the final coming of Christ 
the idealist view suggests that it is simply a story re reinforcing the ideal of good triumphing over evil. As we look at it, we typically would want to take this first idea, sort of a modified predator's view, that the majority of the things that are discussed in the book of Revelation have already occurred and they took place in the first century. That John was being shown the future events that were about to happen. We'll emphasize that here in a minute. So, again, as we're looking at the book of Revelation, we would be different than an awful lot of people in the world because a lot of people in the world want to take this, this futurist view that says, well, the book of Revelation is talking about things that are going to happen just before the Lord comes back, typically just before the Lord comes back and sets up his thousand-year reign on earth. We don't believe that. We don't take that view. We take the view that the majority of the things, not all, but the majority of the things that are in the book of Revelation have already happened and they did transpire in the first century. There's always a question about when was the book written. And really, your, your approach to the book of Revelation is, is affected by which view you take. There is the early date, written sometime in the 60s A.D., written, especially noteworthy, written before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., uh, and then there is a late date that says it was written in, sometime in the 90s A.D. Uh, I would not fall out with a person uh, for taking either one of those views. I, I, don't think that, I don't think that's terribly critical to understanding the big picture of the book of Revelation. I personally lean toward the earlier date. I think it makes better sense. I, I think, at least in my mind, I can make better sense of the symbols uh, uh, and so forth that are in the book of Revelation by making them fit into an earlier date, and therefore you, some of the things that are described would deal with the destruction of Jerusalem. If you took the later date, Jerusalem's already destroyed, so Jerusalem's out of the picture, and, it, and none of it would have to do with Jerusalem. To me, it makes a little better sense. I can make better sense of it anyway by taking the earlier date, that the book was written in the 60s A.D., probably late 60s A.D., but certainly before the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. When we look at Revelation, I think, again, the big picture is what is so important for us to take away. And what we take away in the big picture is that the purpose of this book was to offer comfort, hope, assurance to persecuted Christians. We know that the Christians in the first century were under a really severe persecution. Things were really bad. I mean, beyond really our ability to imagine how terrible it was for people who were trying to serve the Lord faithfully in that first century time frame. So the book of Revelation was written to them to give them that comfort and assurance. And it shows God in control. And it promises that if they stay on God's side, they will be on the winning team. As has been said so often, I think it's a great two-word summary of the book of Revelation. God wins. The book shows a great battle between good and evil going on. And the outcome of it is God wins. Now, if you want to be on the winning side... You want to be on God's side. God wins. That's really the story of the book of Revelation. In this great battle of good and evil, God wins. Uh, there are beasts in the book of Revelation, and a lot of people get really disturbed about who are the beasts, what do they mean, what do they represent. In a simple way, we could say that the beasts are agents used by Satan to persecute God's people. Now, those beasts end up being destroyed along with everybody else who is sided with those beasts. They end up being destroyed too. God wins the battle, the beasts are destroyed. But the beasts are agents. We'll talk maybe a little bit as we go further here as to what those agents might have been. 
but they were agents being used by Satan to persecute the saints. In the very simplest, general way, we can, we can say that. The book of Revelation shows Satan himself defeated. It shows martyred saints uh, alive and well around the throne of God. Victory. Victory for those who've been faithful. Even victory for those who've died for the cause. That's what the book of Revelation is depicting. The question is, is there a message for us? And I would say yes, although we're in a different time and place, and although we're not suffering the kind of persecution they did, obviously, I think there is a message for us, and it comes from that text that Garrett read for us earlier in chapter 14. I really think this tells the tale. Revelation 14, the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or his hand. Stop there for a minute. Someone worshiping the beast. Remember, the beast was an agent of Satan used to persecute Christians. Well, some people were siding with that beast. Some people were lining up or being on the side of the beast. And that was the idea of receiving the mark of the beast on the forehead or the hand. People get all tangled up about what was the mark of the beast. Well, the mark of the beast, whatever it was, was just an indication that you were on that side. And so whoever worshipped the beast, whoever received his mark in his forehead or his hand, what's going to happen to them? In other words, if you're on the side that's been opposing God, if you've been on the side of those who've been persecuting the saints, if you've been aligned with that group, what's going to be your outcome? Verse 10, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast in his image, and whosoever receiveth the, uh, the mark of his name. So, if you're on that side, what's the message? If you're on the side that opposes God, it was true back then and it's true today, if you're on that side opposing God, you're going to pay a price for that. You're going to pay eternally for that, for, for aligning with Satan. But here's the other side, verse 12. Here's the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Right, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, the Spirit saith they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. And so... If you're on God's side, you're going to be blessed. God's going to win this great battle. And if you're on his side, you'll be blessed in the end, eternally. And so that's the message of the book of Revelation. If, that, if, you, if you had no more than that, if you could say no more than that, if you understood no more than that about the book of Revelation, I think you'd have the big picture in mind. And that's what is so important. And that's, that's what we need to have. But let's look a little more particularly, because as I said, we've been busy reading through the book of Revelation I want to just real quickly go through the chapters, what they mean. Chapter 1, of course, is, is an introduction. Uh, and it tells John's initial vision of the Lord. Um, a very important verse when we're studying Revelation. We, all, we always point out Revelation 1.1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. The book of Revelation talking about things that were going to happen in the near term, not the far off future, not us. It's not, not talking about things that happened in our day and time here 2,000 years later. It was talking about things that would shortly come to pass in the first century. And notice it was going to be spoken in signs or symbols. It was signified. So we're told right in the very first verse, the time frame is soon and what follows will be highly figurative. A lot of symbolic language used. 
Now notice in verse 4, this message was sent to the, the seven churches which are in Asia. And so this was sent to real people of the first century. And one of the interpretive rules that we would use here is to say, if this, if this message, whatever meaning we attach to this message, if it would not have proved meaningful to those folks in the first century, probably the wrong interpretation. It was to them, it was about them, it was for them. But if it, if, if we try to put an interpretation on it, it says, well, it was talking about, uh, war in the Middle East, uh, uh, battling for oil in the 21st century. People, people back then wouldn't have made anything. That would have been, that would have been senseless to them. Therefore, that's certainly the wrong interpretation to put on the book of Revelation. See what we're saying? It had to have been meaningful to them. And so whatever meaning we put on the book, we should understand that. Of course, Revelation chapters 2 and 3 are the chapters that are most often taught and preached because they are the understand, the very easily understandable uh, verses in the book of Revelation. These were specific messages to the seven churches. Each one of the seven churches is named, and the Lord says that he knew what was going on there. He, he was aware of what was happening in their places. Uh, the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Damon was challenging me about this just the other day. Damon asked me, you remember the two churches of which only good things are mentioned and nothing bad? Smyrna and Philadelphia are those of the seven. Two who had, those were the two churches had good and nothing bad said about them. But the Lord said, I know your works. I know what's going on there. If the Lord were to address the church at College View tonight, He would say the same thing. I know your works. I know what's going on there. The Lord is aware. He, he knows us. Just as He knew them, He knows us. And we should always keep that in mind. Beginning in chapter 4, sort of the figurative visions begin to be described. And chapter 4 describes a very awesome scene around God's throne. Uh, just to get a sense of that, look. Keep, keep your Bibles here open to Revelation. Let's go to chapter 4. Begin reading there in verse 2. Uh, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat upon the throne. And he that, that sat, and he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow around about the throne, and in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. Again, this is very imaginative, but the idea is to strike awe in us. This is the throne scene in heaven, where God is seated. And we're, we're given a, a description of that. But like so many descriptions in the book of Revelation, if you were to sit down and try to draw a picture of that, if you were to try to take the information supplied and draw a literal picture of it, it would be really hard to do because it wasn't intended that way. It was, it was a, a very figurative or imaginative description meant to strike awe in us. Here's the scene in heaven at the throne of God. What an amazing thing. That's what chapter 4 is about, the awesome scene around God's throne. In chapter 5, uh, Jesus enters the picture. Uh, the, the chapter begins, chapter 5, I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne. So God has in his right hand a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. 
And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven or earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. So John is, is upset. Here's a guy. He's got a book in his hand. There's information here. But nobody is, is considered worthy to be able to open the book and reveal what's inside. But then notice verse 4. I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look therein. And one of the elders said unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And so Jesus is introduced and he is declared worthy to open the book and declare the things which must be hereafter. So as the book is going to be opened, Jesus is going to be able to open that book. He's going to break the seals, let the contents be revealed, and it's going to be talking about the things that are going to happen, the things that are about to happen. So chapter 6. Chapter 6 uh, describes the opening of the first six seals of the book. Uh, and we won't take time to read all of that, of course, but it reveals things that God was going to use to punish those who oppose Him, who oppose His kingdom, who oppose and persecute His people. So the, the, the seals are going to describe things that God is going to use to, to punish those who've been opposing Him. And, and it goes sort of in this order. Seal one, there's going to be military conquest. Second, civil war. Third, famine. Fourth, hunger and disease. Fifth, is going, the fifth seal is going to explain why God is preparing to send this punishment and judgment. And then the sixth seal describes the earth shaking at the consequence of what was about to happen. So, again, get the picture. The first six seals are open. It's describing things that are about to happen, things God's going to do to those who have been opposing Him. In chapter 7 uh, of Revelation, the story it, it takes a break, sort of an interlude, because the, a question is asked, well, if it's going to be that bad, who in the world will be able to stand? Uh, who, who will be able to... Uh, uh, right at the end of chapter 6, chapter 6, verse 17, the, the great day of His wrath has come. Who shall be able to stand? If it's going to be that bad, who in the world would be able to endure that? And, and the answer is given that God will seal His people. Um, and uh, it, it's, it's revealed that in heaven, uh, there is going to be blessing for all those who are faithful to Him. Um, so, chapter 7, get this. Now, Jesus is opening the book. The book is sealed with seven seals. Chapter 6, the opening of the first six seals. What God's going to do to those who've been opposing. But it's going to be so bad, the question is asked, well, who will be able to stand? And the answer in chapter 7 is given, those who've been faithful to God, He will seal them. They will be able to stand throughout all that is about to come. And then chapter 8 comes. And in chapter 8, the seventh seal is opened and it leads to the sounding of seven trumpets. Now, as we keep going further into it, it begins maybe get a little confusing. We can get lost now if we're not careful. Keep, it, keep track of this. Six seals have been opened. The seventh seal is open. And the, when the seventh seal is open, it reveals seven trumpets. And I think a good way to view this is sort of uh, it zooms in. Uh, so the seventh seal... When you get inside of it, there are seven trumpets. And so it, 
sort of zooms in on the last thing God was prepared to do to avenge his persecuted saints. All right? So, uh, the seven trumpets of the seventh seal. Chapter 8. In chapter 8, trumpets 1, 2, 3, and 4 announced various means God would use to punish the adversaries of his people. Uh, things that are suggested are things like weapons of war, the futility of various defenses that people might try to use, the defection of allies, the loss of territory and power. It's interesting as you read that, uh, uh, that these are just partial judgments. Uh, look in chapter 8 at verse 7, for instance. In chapter 8 at verse 7, the first angel sounded and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood and they were cast upon the earth and the third part of the trees was burnt and all green grass was burnt. Uh, the second angel sounded as were a great mountain burning with fire was cast in the sea and the third part of the sea became blood. Notice this is not complete. This is partial. And the idea, these are partial judgments that, that still left some room for repentance. Maybe people would turn to God as these things began to unfold. So the first four trumpets sound, the chapter ends with three woes. Uh, if, if you look at that, um, it, in verse 13 of chapter 8, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpets of the three angels which are yet to sound. So the first four trumpets sounded, Bad things are happening, but not complete judgment upon the enemies of God, leaving some room for repentance. But the last three of the judgments will be worse, it is suggested. Uh, in chapter 9, you get trumpets 5 and 6, the first two woes. Uh, the first two woes uh, uh, are the Jews turning upon one another, and, and history says they did. And then the, the, the sixth trumpet, the full strength of the Roman army coming upon Jerusalem, I think, is being depicted there. Chapter 10, again, sort of an interlude before the final trumpet is sounded. In that interlude period, in other words, a lot of bad stuff is happening in the final judgment. The, the ultimate end is going to be announced. Uh, the temple is measured for destruction and the two witnesses complete their work. There's always some question there in, ch in chapter 10 and 11 about the two witnesses. Who were they? And I think a, a good answer to that is that the two witnesses were probably the law and the prophets of the Old Testament. Moses and Elijah, if you would, as representatives of the law and the prophets. Uh, they, they were witnessing against the Jews because they had rejected the work of the law and the prophets of Moses and Elijah, if you will. And so, the temple's measured. It's going to be destroyed. The two witnesses have finished their work now, and they've been rejected, but they stand as testimony against the Jews who are about to be punished. And then the seventh trumpet sounds, heaven rejoices in God's completed judgment. And so, when you get to the end of chapter 11, you're only halfway through the book of Revelation, but the story has been told. Uh... And, and there seems to be a clear break after chapter 11. The story's been told. It's finished. We, and, and so it's all been revealed what's about to happen. God is going to send judgment upon those who have opposed him and who have persecuted his saints. Uh, and, and a lot of that persecution, of course, has come from the unbelieving Jews. And they're going to be punished. And so there is a break there. Uh, and, and what happens 
then is that we sort of go behind the scenes of this great conflict that the book of Revelation has been describing. In chapter 12, it talks about a woman who's about to bring forth a son. Notice in chapter 12. Now again, get the idea. We have the full picture now of what God's about to do. Now we're going to get a little background information, a little behind the scenes information. In chapter 12, verse 1, there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth, and pained to be delivered. So a woman is about to give birth to a child. Now, as you think about that, who might that be? The, 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 the man-child about to be born, we think, is clearly Jesus. Who would the woman be? Would it be literally Mary? Probably not. Probably a better way to envision this is that the one who was going to bring forth the man-child was the faithful people of God who have brought everything up to this point in history. Right? All the faithful of God throughout the history of time leading up to the coming of Christ, probably represented by this woman, who then the, the man-child would be delivered through that. Uh, a red dragon, Satan, he's, he's ready to destroy the child as soon as he is born. Verse 3, there appeared under uh, another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and, seven, and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head, and his tail grew the third part of the star, drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. So Satan wanted to destroy Christ, of course, just as soon as he was born. But the child is born, uh, and with the coming of the child, uh, Satan is cast down and defeated. Look at verse 7. There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought in his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon which cast down that old Satan called the devil, uh, uh, that great excuse me, I'm sorry, the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. You know, the coming of Christ and the work that Jesus did was the defeat of Satan, right? When, when Jesus came, he gave victory over death and the, and, and the true hope of immortality. So with the coming of Jesus, Satan was, was defeated. Uh, but he's not completely destroyed yet. And he, but he, but he knows his time is limited and he's angry. Skip down to verse 12. Therefore rejoice ye heavens and, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down unto you having great wrath because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man child. Who's the woman again? God's faithful people. And so Satan was going to persecute them more because he realized the time that he had left was short. And he was angry at being uh, defeated with the coming of Christ. Chapter 13 describes some of the agents that Satan would use as he continues his attack upon God's faithful people. Now remember, this is sort of a behind-the-scenes look. We've already saw what God's going to do. Now this is sort of telling some of the information behind the scenes. Satan tried to destroy Christ, but he wasn't successful. And the coming of Christ actually defeated Satan. Now he's, he's got limited time and he's very angry and he's working hard to persecute God's people. Uh, and so he's going to employ some agents to help him in that. 
The first of the agents is called a sea beast. In chapter 13, verse 1, I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And so, I think a good way to view the sea beast, I don't think it's absolutely critical to have agreement about this, but it seems to me that the sea beast is the Roman Empire. And we know that the Roman Empire certainly was uh, very active in persecuting Christians. Satan was using them to accomplish that purpose. Then, another beast is introduced who is a land beast, chapter 13, verse 11, I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon, and he exercised over, and he exercised all the power of the first beast before him, and caused the earth and them that dwell therein to worship the first beast. So, uh, the suggestion here is that the, the, the second beast, the land beast, was false religion. First beast, Roman Empire. Second beast was false religion. Maybe especially, uh, false religion that included the worship of the emperor. We know that the Roman emperors began to allow themselves to be acclaimed as deity and to be worshipped as such and actually to require people to worship them as such. And so, what were these beasts? Again, we don't have to get all bent out of shape about identifying them other than to say they were agents Satan would use to persecute God's people. He knows his time is short and he's going to be very aggressive now in persecuting God's people. Remember the time short, uh, as announced here, concerning the things God was about to do. Uh, chapter 14. In chapter 14, more information about the great conflict. 144,000 are named. We know that our Jehovah's Witness friends get this wrong. But the 144,000, I think, are representative of the righteous who died before Christ's time. And then a sequence is laid out. The gospel is preached. Jerusalem's doom is announced. Emperor worshipers are warned. Uh, two harvests are told about in chapter 14. The harvest of the righteous and the harvest of the wicked. I think he's especially talking about the Jews in all of that. In chapter 15... The stage is set. The main characters are all out there before us now. It's time for the action uh, to take place. Victorious saints are seen in heaven. Seven angels are prepared to pour out the seven last plagues. Now, what we're going to have here then is sort of a quick retelling of the things we already talked about in the first 11 chapters. Chapter 15 says, okay, we're going to now talk about seven angels pouring out seven plagues. Well, again, I think what we have there is a retelling of the events that we were that we already described in chapters 6 through 11. Seven bowls of God's wrath are poured out. It culminates <coughs> excuse me, it culminates with the assembling of armies at a place called Armageddon. Look in chapter 16 verse 16. He gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. Now, this is, this is a known geographical location in, in, in that region. And it was a place in the Old Testament, uh, that had seen a lot of battles. Great and mighty battles had occurred there. Um, this, but, but in regards to what Revelation is talking about, the book of, uh, the Roman forces, we know that the Roman forces assembled in this valley 
prior to their final assault on the city of Jerusalem. So I think he's talking about now things coming up to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. A city called Babylon is revealed. There's going to be fighting against and destruction of Babylon. I think chapter 17 identifies Babylon as Jerusalem. I think chapter 18 does the same thing and tells about the fall of Babylon. There's always a lot of debate, and again, I wouldn't necessarily disagree with someone if they would take a different view on this, but to me it makes the best sense that Babylon the Great that that is told about here in these final chapters of Revelation is Jerusalem. And the fall of Jerusalem is being described, and we know that fall of Jerusalem took place in 70 A.D. And so Babylon falls. Chapter 19, there's great rejoicing in heaven. Christ continues to be victorious all over all his enemies. Chapter 20 foretells the binding and loosing of Satan and the final judgment. Remember at the outset we said we don't believe that everything in Revelation has already been completed. There's some parts that have not. Obviously, I think chapter 20 is telling about the final judgment scene. And that hasn't happened yet. And so while we believe that Revelation primarily deals with things that have already been fulfilled... We don't think that everything in the book of Revelation has been filled, been fulfilled. And I think chapter 20 uh, would certainly uh, describe the final coming and judgment. Uh, chapter 21, then. In chapter 21, we haven't got to these chapters in our daily Bible reading yet, but we will right away. In chapter 21, a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem uh, are described. Um, and there we see some wonderful things, you know. Uh, talk about he'll, he'll wipe away all tears from their eyes and so forth. I think that in a literal way, it would certainly describe conditions in heaven. And we sing some songs that describe what we think heaven will be like. You know, we take away all suffering and pain and all tears, no dying. And so it could be describing the conditions in heaven, which I think it does. But I think also that that chapter 21 is meant to describe the, the blessed state of affairs for those who are in the kingdom now. Uh, so it could be taken to indicate how things are even right now in the church. And then finally, chapter 22. In chapter 22, we have the description of the New Jerusalem being concluded. And John is given some final instructions concerning the revelation he has received. And look at Revelation 22, verse 10. John was told, Seal not uh, the, the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. Sort of an interesting contrast can be made with the book of Daniel. And when Daniel was given his prophecy, he was told to seal up the things that he wrote about because he said the time is not yet. But John was told, don't seal up the things that you've written about, for the time is at hand. And that's why we would argue that anybody who's seeing 21st century world politics in the book of Revelation is wrong, because John was talking about, at the start of the book, things that must shortly come to pass, and at the end of the book he was told, don't seal it up, because the time is at hand for these things to happen. John wasn't writing about things that are happening in our lifetime. He was talking about things that happened back there in the first century. And so that's sort of the big picture of the book of Revelation. Again, I think if we wanted to just have a, a, a nutshell view of what's in the book of Revelation, it's talking about this great battle between the forces of God and the forces of evil, and God's going to win that battle. 
Specifically, it describes things God was about to do to punish those who had been opposing Him in that first century time frame. He's describing some things that are going to happen to those who had been persecuting Christians and causing great harm. And God was about to bring judgment against them. The judgment was going to come against the unbelieving Jews and the city of Jerusalem. The judgment was going to come against Rome and its opposition to him. So I think the book of Revelation describes both. A judgment against Jerusalem and a judgment against Rome. The, the thing we learn from that, of course, is that if you oppose God, you will pay a price for that. And we don't want to do that, of course. Well, uh, I hope that's helpful. Keep reading there in your daily Bible readings. And as you're going through Revelation, try to keep that big picture view in mind if you can. Uh, and don't get too tangled up in the specific symbols and figurative language that keep you from seeing, uh, I think, the, the real message God wants us to take away. Thanks for your good attention to what we had to say tonight. We're going to sing a song of invitation. As we do, we'll be encouraging everybody to think about your relationship with God and make sure that you are in a right standing with Him. If you need to obey the gospel plan of salvation, do that. Uh, let us encourage you to make that decision without delay. If you're a Christian already but you've not been faithful to the Lord, We urge you to come back to Him in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help, let us know while we stand and sing.